Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth. And to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Amen. How about the video? That was like epic. Holy cow. Most epic intro video ever. All right, as you can see, we're beginning a brand new series today in the book of Genesis, and uh, I'm just going to apologize now for the overly long introduction. You'll see why it's important, I hope. Uh, We're going to be moving through the first roughly half of the book, taking us up through Easter. Uh, And the reason I think Genesis is important for us to look at, besides the fact that it's, you know, the first book in the Bible, and the reason I think it's important to look at, besides the fact that it's also the foundation For the New Testament, there are roughly 150 or so references to Genesis in the New Testament. The reason that I think, actually, that the book of Genesis is important to look at is this. If you think that the Bible is primarily a a series of, like, either bedtime stories or stories designed to give you like a, like a, a, a moral compass or sort of a, an Aesop's fable kind of a thing. If you think the Bible, Bible is primarily all about you and the ways you're supposed to be good and God you know, loves the good and hates the bad people or the Bible is primarily a, like, a, like a merit-based system of earning your way into the favor of God, or a God, then Genesis is the cure. It's the antidote. It's the dynamite in the middle of that kind of thinking because the subject of the Bible, as the very first sentence shows us, isn't you, isn't me, Genesis 1-1, come on, in the beginning, God. Yeah, God is the subject of the Bible, and thankfully, Christians for centuries have recognized this. I mean, think of the Apostles' Creed, right? What's the first line? It's, I believe in God the Father Almighty, what? Maker, yeah, creator of heaven and earth. So Christians have agreed on this, and yet Christians for centuries have also disagreed about just how God created the heavens and the earth. Because Christians, Jesus-loving people, 
with a high view of Scripture and the inerrancy of the Bible, have looked at this passage, Genesis 1, and they've wondered, well, what does it mean? Now, the best way to answer that question, the best way to answer the question, what does any passage of the Bible mean, is to ask, first of all, well, what did the author mean when he wrote it? What was his original audience? To whom was the author writing? Who did he intend to communicate to? And if we can answer that question, that'll keep us out of all kind of ditches we don't even want to end up in. And one of the ways that it helped determine that is also to ask, well, what kind of literature are we reading? Because most of the time in the Bible, the literature that you're reading is pretty clear. It's pretty evident. For example, you get to the Psalms. It's Hebrew poetry, but it still is poetry. And most of Genesis, a good bit of the rest of the Bible is what's called historical prose, narrative. And where it gets tricky are a few places where Jesus-loving people with a high view of the Bible, inerrancy of Scripture, are unsure. Genesis 1 is one of those places. And for some, Genesis is some of the hallmarks of biblical poetry because there's what's called, sorry for the term here, strophic repetition. There are phrases like evening and morning, and God said, day and night, and it was good. Those phrases show up over and over like a chorus. They're consistent with the poetry of the Bible, leaving some Jesus-loving people with a high view of the Bible, to ask if Genesis 1 is meant to be not science, but a song. A song that celebrates who God is, what he's done. And yet, on the other hand, the other common element of Hebrew poetry, parallelism, isn't there. Leaving other Jesus-loving people with a high view of the Bible to believe that Genesis 1 was meant to be a literal 24-hour period interpretation. So for some, they believe Genesis 1 is meant to be poetic. For some, they, meant to, they believe it's meant to be literal. And yet for centuries, again, from the beginning of the church, folks like Augustine, uh, Arrhenius, uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, they've all wrestled with this, people with a high view of the Bible, and they've agreed to disagree and to remain together in what's called the circle of orthodoxy. But something else has happened, especially over the last 50 years or so, especially, that's made this agreement difficult. Because well-meaning Christians on both sides have looked at each other and begun not just to disagree, but to disdain each other over the other side. On one side, the folks who see the days in Genesis as literal 24-hour periods have said of the other side, they're destroyers of truth. Those dirty liberals, they've got no foundation for the rest of Scripture. They're compromisers influenced by the Darwinists. On the other side, those who see Genesis 1 not as literal, but as a poetic song meant to communicate something besides science, primarily theology, look at the 24-hour people and say, those unscientific, fundamentalist, closed-minded conservatives, they're the reason we're losing our kids at the universities. Now, Those kind of attitudes, let me just suggest, are not at all consistent with who we want to be as a church and as whom I believe Jesus wants his people to be. And so if you're here today and you showed up for this series on Genesis and you were hoping I was going to say something and take a side against what the church has done historically, which is to make room for Jesus-loving people with a high view of the Bible and the inerrancy of Scripture, to have good reasons to differ about what this crucial passage means, please don't hold your breath. 
So what I want to do with this passage instead, instead of getting into where Christians differ, is to show you where and why Christians have agreed, have agreed about Genesis 1 since the beginning, and to affirm what we can know from this amazing and really complex passage. Sound good? All right. Even if it doesn't, here I go. So what can we learn? What do we see primarily? What do we see first? Most importantly, in this passage, in Genesis 1, three things we're going to see today. Number one, there was something before the beginning. Number two, there is something because of the beginning. And third, there has been something beaten or defeated by the beginning. So before the beginning, because of the beginning, and beaten by the beginning. Here we go. Let's look at what there was before The beginning, here we go, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning, once more, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said. Now, of course, one of the obvious implications of Genesis 1, the doctrine of creation, is that the universe had a beginning at a specific moment in time. The universe has not always existed, but this is showing us that God himself caused us cause the universe to come into existence but and yet if we look a little deeper we find there's something else incredible happening before creation happens we see right here number one there's god we see second what the writer calls the spirit of god and together they create third through the word of god because you'll notice whenever god creates here he doesn't just like wave a wand like the guy in fantasia remember that old disney movie right waves a wand stuff happens and pops up and explodes nor does god just sort of think right and universes and time streams just pop from his head no Always God speaks. Always it says, and God said. So the New Testament writers looked at this and they said, aha. And from here, from the raw material of Genesis 1, they said, yes, now we can see what was really going on before the beginning. We've got one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Word, And John 1 goes so far as to say that the word, God's spoken word, the thing he used to create, took on flesh, became human, and God's spoken word had a name. His name was Jesus. And so there they are. Not just from the beginning, but before the beginning, before the beginning, there was one God in three persons, which means this. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Think of mere Christianity. He said, Christianity, God, is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And so if you're asking, well, if God existed before the beginning, what was that one God in three persons? What was the community of God doing for an infinite amount of time? Well, C.S. Lewis just told you, God was dancing. God was dancing. You say more, did you just say that before, let me quote you, before the universe ever existed, God was dancing? Well, in a way, yes, but not with himself, within himself, within himself. You say, what does that mean? Try to explain. One of my favorite parts 
of a wedding, a wedding. And by the way, being a minister and a pastor, I get to go to weddings all the time. Uh, I get to, you know, officiate them and all that, but I get to go to a lot of weddings. And one of my favorite parts of any wedding is when you get to the reception, uh, usually the first thing that ever happens after the bride and the groom arrive is the first dance, the first dance, the bride and the groom, they get there, they're out on the floor. Everybody's watching. And they hold each other close and tight and they dance and everyone looks in. And I don't care if you've been married for a year or 50 years, married or single, everybody wants to be them. They want that to be you. You want that to be uh, them right there. Why? Because you know that that simple act, that dance between lovers is what life is all about at its essence, at its core. That dance is moving. That dance is poetic. That dance is lovely. That's what life is all about. And from that one dance will come the rest of their lives. Out of that dance will spill out everything that comes next. Out of that one moment will come a family, perhaps, a life, right? Everything they have together. Other things will happen at the reception. Other stuff will go down during life. But everything comes back to that one dance, Why? Oh, because what's at the center of the dance? Here it is. Love is. Love is at the center of the dance. And in the same way, therefore, love is at the center of God. And that's why the Bible can make the astonishing claim, not just that God feels love or experiences love or gives love, but the Bible can make the claim that God is love. God is love in the same way you could say that the dance you just saw at the wedding is love. Well, was the dance more than love? Well, yeah, it was more than love, but it wasn't less Love moved the dance. Love animated it, brought the dance to life. Love held the dance together. And the Christian faith is the only worldview, the only philosophy, the only faith system that can say the universe was made out of love, made for love. In a way, love is what holds the universe together, but only in the Christian worldview. You don't get that in Hinduism. Don't get that in Islam. Don't get that in atheism, certainly. We'll come back to that which means this for you today. If there's something more important to you than love, than relationships, then literally you are going against the grain of the universe. If your life, if the way it's currently structured, if it kills the opportunity somehow, some way for meaningful relationships with your family, spouse, if you're married, children, if you have them, with your friends, your church community, then you, if that's you, You're like the typical American then. (laughs) Here's why. Because in America, we get it backward, right? We say career comes first. Oh, but but, but hang on. But flash forward, friends, to your deathbed. Sorry, not a pleasant thought. But Ecclesiastes says, uh, what is it? The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning. All right, morning. Flash forward to your deathbed. Will your career stand next to you? Hold your hand and wipe your drool. No. Who do you want next to you? What do you want next to you? You want, you're going to want what means most. People who love you. Will you say, forget all these people. Forget my wife, children, grandchildren. Away with them. Get me to the office. No, you're not going to say that. You're going to say, where is my family? Where are my loved ones? Why, why, why? Because before the beginning, there was love. There was love. We're made from love for love. That's number one. 
Number two, though, we also see in this passage, there's not just something before the beginning. There's something actually because of the beginning. Let's move on to verse 26 and 27. It says, then God said, let us make man human, humankind in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Perhaps you've heard of a, uh, a man by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre, a famous 20th century atheist, existentialist. He wrote a, a famous book, which some of you may have been forced to read. It's called On Being and Nothingness. Sounds appropriately philosophical, right? Which basically talks about how we're all meaningless in life. Yeah, real uh, uh, barn burner page turner for you. Now, a lot of people didn't like that. The fact that Sartre said, man, you're meaningless. Your life is meaningless. People pushed back, of course. And so he wrote an essay and sort of doubled down on what he said. And in the essay, he gave the example. He said, all right. He said, uh, think about a pen knife or a paper knife, a knife that can, that can cut through paper. And he said, look at that. Look at a paper knife. But he said it in French, so it sounded a lot fancier, right? (laughs) But he said, look at a paper knife. The only way to know whether or not it's a good knife is uh, to know if the knife had a creator. And if the knife had a creator, then you could ask the creator, is that knife a good knife or a bad knife, right? The purpose of the knife. And so he said, in the biblical view of God, if there's a God, he said, quote, God makes man according to a procedure and a conception, exactly as the artisan manufacturer makes a paper knife following a definition and a formula. So Sartre is saying, if God is real, if Genesis 1 is true, if the doctrine of creation is true, then God comes first. Our understanding of who we are, our understanding of right and wrong, they come from him, not us. But Sartre said, I don't believe that. Man comes first, not God. Therefore, we have no purpose. And he went on to say, a little bit longer quote here. He said, here then is the problem. The atheism of the 18th century abolished God and still insisted there was such a thing as human nature, that there were still things humans must do because they're good. Atheistic existentialism, of which I am a representative, I meaning Sartre, not Morgan, all right, make sure you know what we're talking about, declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, we must face the consequences of this. We are not made for our purpose, like a paper knife, that therefore there is no a priori good. Nowhere is it written that human beings must be honest, must not lie, because we are now on a plane where there are only human beings and no God. As Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, everything is permitted. So Sartre went on to say, well, therefore, I got good news and I got bad news for you if there's no God. The good news is you're totally free to live however you want. No consequences. But the bad news is, he said, you can't talk anymore about right and wrong, about words like justice, words like oppression. They don't mean anything. They're, They're literally making those things up. Now, that was Sartre. And he was so influential, by the way, in the 20th century and influential for modern philosophy that when he died, I think 1980, 50,000 people lined the streets of Paris, sent him on his way. But here was his problem, and maybe you can see it coming. Sartre never lived as if there were no meaning. He was unbelievably clear in his writing and unbelievably inconsistent in his actions. He couldn't get any clear in all of his writings. He believed there was no right, no wrong, no good, no bad, no difference between justice and oppression. But he actively campaigned for multiple causes he believed in. Why? Well, another atheist writer, Philippa Foote, 
professor of philosophy, she wrote an article. She said, all right. She looked at Sartre. She said, here's what basically what we atheists do. She said, we go around applauding those who definitively say there is no such thing as right or wrong. We applaud those who say that moral judgments are wrong. And then we spend the rest of our lives making moral judgments. She asked, why do we do this? Why are we so inconsistent in this way? I can tell you why. Actually, Genesis 1 can tell you why. See, because of the beginning, because God came first, because God made people, people did not make God. We are designed by him. And because he is a moral God who makes moral judgments, we cannot help ourselves. It is so deep within us to affirm right, to condemn wrong, that even when our minds betray us, our hearts still beat for right and wrong, for good and bad. Why? Because we have a design Because God came first. See, because of the beginning, there is a design. I remember being a child and going to visit my grandparents uh, in Montana. Maybe some of you have been there. Beautiful country. Uh, My granddad took me out on a boat in a lake, and we were way high up in the the mountains of Montana, and it was on a lake. And uh, uh, the lake we were on, there were some uh, some cliffs nearby where there were these bald eagles nesting. And they were beautiful birds. If you've ever seen one, they're majestic birds. They're awe-inspiring. They would take off and circle and circle and spiral and land. And uh, you would think the same thing I thought if you saw them, you know, taking off and landing. You would think... I want to do that. I want to be that. Why? Because the eagle seemed so free. And the eagle was free. Why? Because the eagle was free because the eagle wasn't me. Right. It was made to soar. Now, let's say that uh, I wanted to be like the eagle. I climbed up there in those rocks because I decided I had enough of those pesky limits of gravity. I was tired of the label. That an oppressive, reductionistic, and anti-liberty culture had given me of human being. I decided I was actually a bird. Hey, who to tell me, who, you tell me who I am, who I'm not labels of for the week. What if I decided I was going to be free? I'm going to free myself and fly. I'm me. I believe Jean-Paul Sartre. I'm totally free to live any way I want. What would happen? Of course, the obvious, I would either be dead or horrifically mangled. Right. Because I would be living outside of my, what, design. My design, therefore, isn't limiting as much as it is freeing because when I don't try to fly, now I'm actually free to do things like run, which the eagle can't do, free to think in ways the eagle can't, I'm free to create, right? See, true freedom, therefore, isn't living with no restrictions. True freedom is living within the right restrictions, the restrictions I was designed for. And Genesis 1 tells you that because God came first, hear me, and God made you, you're not an accident. You'll never be free, truly free, until you come to know and relate to him deeply. And like the eagle soaring in the sky to come to know and live for God is to take off and soar in the wind and the air and the sky your heart was made to live in. And from there, I want to tell you, secondly, second implication, if no one's ever told you this before, that because you're designed by God himself, there are unique things about you that a designer, a creator has put in you. And there's a place where you were made to soar in your own way. And yes, sometimes you can see that right away. Sometimes it takes a little longer, but it's just true. And I'll bet if you looked inside yourself today, if you listen to those closest to you, which is why, by the way, church community is so important, you'd find that 
same thing somewhere. A little voice saying, you were made for this. Don't quit there. Don't quit on that. Keep acting on that. See, that eagle didn't become what it became overnight. Neither will you. So Genesis 1 tells us, first of all, number one, before the beginning, there was love. But second, because of the beginning, there's also design. Love and design. Now, pause. Here's my question. Why don't we live those two things out? Why don't we live in love? It comes first. Why can't we live out our design? You ever ask that? If God came first, made us with love and design, why can't we just do those two things effortlessly? Now, I don't want to give it all away. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks in depth. But there is a massive hint here, a clue as to what God always does either in our lives or in the universe to help us live in love and live out our design. We've got to see here, number three, finally, that there has been something beaten by the beginning, defeated by it. What was it? Look at verse two. It says this, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. All right. Can you see the pattern here? Happens throughout the Bible. Genesis 1, 1, verse 1. God is... God's active, God creates, doing something, then verse two, darkness. God is, then darkness. God has to always come and confront and overcome the darkness throughout the Bible. Why? Here's why. Because darkness is more than just a physical thing in the Bible. Darkness is also a spiritual reality. Say it again. Darkness is more than a physical thing in the Bible. Darkness is also a spiritual reality. What does this mean? Oh, actually, it's astonishing how many, when I study this, how many commentators, scholars all go back. They point to the same place to help unpack what Genesis 1, 2 means. Here's where we'll go. If you know the story, uh, uh, moving one book ahead in the book of Exodus, actually. In the book of Exodus, when it comes to that whole series and story of the plagues, uh, there's a darkness, right? There's a darkness that falls over the land of Egypt, and the darkness is the last of the ten plagues of Egypt, as you, will, of course, will know if you've seen the documentary with Charlton Heston <laughs> called The Ten Commandments. And so... <clears throat> In that documentary right there, if you've seen it, it shows you the plagues that come on Pharaoh and on Egypt because they refuse to let the Hebrew people go and release them from their slavery. But there's something curious, and maybe you've thought this, this drove me nuts for years, and I thought this when I heard the movie and I I read the story, and you probably, you know, thought this too when you saw the movie, I mean documentary, and you read the Bible, and you thought this, like maybe around like the third Fourth, for sure, the latest, like the fifth plague, you thought, why didn't Pharaoh relent? I mean, why didn't he let the people go? There's all this traumatic stuff. Why couldn't he grasp? He's messing with Almighty God. There's no way out, right? I mean, there's no way out. And the answer is, I think, is to say this. Pharaoh didn't repent. Pharaoh didn't believe because the plagues looked too natural. The plagues look too normal in a way, right? Think about it. What was the first plague? Well, it's the Nile being turned to blood, which resulted because the Nile turned to blood. And the second plague, the frogs coming up out of the water because they couldn't survive in the river anymore, which resulted in a third plague, the frogs 
dying, right? Because they can't survive outside the water, which brought the plague of gnats to feast upon them, which brought the fourth plague, the plague of flies, which resulted in the fifth plague, the death of the cattle because the flies bit them and so on and so forth all the way up. To the tenth and final plague, the darkness where the, it says the destroyer comes and puts to death the firstborn sons of all those in Egypt. So what starts with the polluted river ends in massive death, but only bit by bit by bit. Well, what was, what's happening here? Well, can you see what's happening is that it's the unraveling of creation. It's the unraveling of the world, the unraveling of the created order from the water to the animals to the ecosystem. It's all dying. It's all going away. It's all rewinding back in one place at one point in time, all the way back to Genesis 1 to the darkness, showing you, therefore, actually the consequences of people's sin and what sin does to the world. Sin disintegrates, sin unravels, and the reason that Pharaoh didn't get it until it was too late is because the plagues, they look too normal, right? They look too logical, but then when he saw where it was headed, when he finally saw what the darkness was, what the darkness could do, it was too late. His own son died because he said, oh, what's happening around me? The world's not supernatural. It's just coincidental. Just time plus chance, see? If you read the passage, of course, in in Exodus, it says at first that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then later it says, well, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And people get offended by this. But all God was doing, can you see, was just affirming what Pharaoh had already chosen over and over and over again. Going along with Pharaoh's repeated choice, just giving Pharaoh what he wanted, a life without him, a life that didn't recognize him, a life lived apart from him, a life lived in darkness. And when the darkness came down on Pharaoh and on Egypt, yeah, yeah, God brought it, but he only brought what, in a way, Pharaoh already wanted. And what the darkness shows, that it's a space, it's a place without the rule and the presence and the love of God. And the darkness in Egypt, therefore, gives us a hint of what it looks like to live apart from God for an eternity. Solitude, aloneness, you can't see anyone all alone, separated, pain and death. But it didn't start that way for Pharaoh, didn't it? It just started with a simple choice to ignore God. A choice that said, everything looks just like what's happening to me. It's just coincidental. What's happening in the universe all around me isn't supernatural. It's just logical. Who is the Lord, he said. And that's the way it happens for us. We start by looking at our lives all around us. We think all what's happening around us, the way the universe is looking, is just like some natural process, some just time plus chance. It could be supernatural, Ah, but we harden our hearts and we look the other way and we say, now God's not behind any of this. Why should I listen to him? Why should I obey him? Instead of repenting when he had the opportunity, Pharaoh hardened his heart and put his own life on a collision course with darkness. Is this you? Maybe. Is this me? Is this us? If it is, and you know what, to be honest, it's always us at some point in our lives. What can break us free of that darkness? What can break us free? Well, It's by seeing, of all things, another darkness. 
Another darkness. Because astonishingly, in the New Testament, centuries later, another darkness came down on the land. And this time, the gospel writer Luke records that on the day Jesus Christ was crucified, another darkness came down and descended on him. This time, a darkness came down on Jesus, another firstborn son. Why? Because he was being unmade. The word of God, the creator of the universe was being unmade. He was falling apart. He was disintegrating. He was getting what all we little tyrants, what all we little pharaohs deserve. He was tasting the darkness, the solitude of an eternity spent apart from God. And he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you see he's being cut out of a dance? being cut out of a love, being cut out, excluded from a love he had always known. And the pain of that is what caused his heart to burst. And Jesus died in darkness. Why? Oh, because Jesus Christ, the word of God, through whom the darkness was defeated in Genesis, the word of the Father who created life and light and you and me was now defeating the darkness once more. So that you and I could live in the light, live in truth, live in the beauty of his love and be free to live out who we were designed to be. And this is who our God is. And if you are a Christian today, this is who our God is. He is always a defeater of the darkness. He always brings light into it. He defeated it in creation. He defeated it again at the cross. And he'll return once more to put an end to all darkness. You have darkness, maybe, your life today. Hear me. What you need is, is the word, the word of God. You either need to repent and say, God, I'm sorry for being my own Pharaoh, Pharaoh, my own ruler. Would you help me? Or would you just say, God, I need more of your word in my life today. I'm filling my life with all kinds of things that are killing me, bringing darkness into it, whether it's a television for some of you, alcohol maybe for some of you, and a relationship for some of you, some kind of thing or person or idea. You just say, God, I need your word. Would you forgive me? And you begin to take up your, the word of God. And you begin to speak that out also in your life, over the darkness, over the formlessness, and you watch things begin to change. What was before the beginning? Love. What do we have because of the beginning? Oh, a design. And what was beaten by the beginning? The darkness. Oh, how? Oh, because the word of God brought light in. And now I hope you see the the kind of proof that we have of what the Bible is all about. And what I hope we'll all see in the weeks to come before I just pray for you here. I hope we'll see in the weeks to come that not only is the Bible about God, The universe is about him. Your life is about him. And that our lives are better when God and his word are at the center.